Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we'll be looking at the first half of chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23. Well, we've seen how the trials coming at David seem to be increasing in frequency and degree. In fact, it seems like the threat to his life is now a constant issue. And you can imagine it must also be a tremendous burden. Tremendous burden. We've already seen how David has succumbed to his fear of King Saul's maniacal pursuit of him. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David fled for his life to the town of Nob on his way to the Philistine city of Gath. And in Nob, David tried to protect himself with a lie, a lie to the priest in the tabernacle. And then he put all the priests in the whole city in harm's way because of his behavior. And he even showed evidence of placing his trust in being given the huge sword of Goliath. When he came to Gath, David realized just how precarious his life really was. And just how foolish his plan was, if he had a plan. To think that he could hide amongst the people of Goliath's hometown. He was captured and resorted to pretending he was insane. He was let go because the king there had too many other mad people already to deal with. But this way too close call woke him up to the utter foolishness of relying on his own devices and plans to escape Saul. What a wake-up call. Escaping to the cave of Adullam in chapter 22, we begin to see how the terror and the fear of being hunted and being an outlaw in his own country began to change in David's heart. It began to change into the recognition again that the Lord was indeed with him. Suddenly we see those in distress and those in debt and those bitter in soul coming to help. Coming for help to David. And coming for his leadership. His own family came to him too. He may be hunted by Saul, but now he had the responsibility of taking care of and leading a remnant of Israel. David then seeks a safe place for his parents to go to be away from the threats of Saul. He goes to Moab and asks the king there to let his parents stay under that king's protection. The king agrees, and we realize that David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was... From Moab. At this point, God sends the prophet Gad to give direction to David about what to do next. The circumstances haven't changed. David is still being constantly hunted by Saul, but David is no longer relying on his own devices to stay alive. That's the change, and it's a big one. He sees that God has been protecting him despite his foolish ways. 
His focus has come back to the Lord. The rest of chapter 22 focuses on on Saul's obsession in pursuing David, including Saul wiping out the town of Nob because of David getting some sustenance there. Remember the holy bread? David recognizes that he was so fearful of getting caught in Nob that he had put the whole town in danger and now they had all paid for it with their lives. What a weight to be carrying. Only one priest escaped that slaughter, Abiathar, who flees to David, and David promises to keep him safe. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 14. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Kilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Kilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds 
in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now I know this is another wild story, and it's only half of a chapter this time. But still, we do well to consider everything that David is facing as well as we can. If anybody has ever needed assurance that God would provide for his servants in their desolate and trying times, would you agree it was David? The question is, what resources does God make available to his servant David in his intense and continuing trial. Now before you immediately jump to your own trials, which we tend to do, we're so self-oriented, we need to understand what God provided his anointed king. And then we can learn from that to apply it to our situations. This chapter gives us two big, big pictures. The first one we're covering today is the resource that God makes available to his servant in all of this intense and continuing trial is what? We just read it. The revelation of God's word. The next half of the chapter, we see Jonathan appear for the last time, almost out of nowhere. God sends him to David in his dark, dark time of discouragement. So that would be the encouragement of a fellow believer. Also very special, but do you notice what comes first? This this half of the chapter, the first half, is really oriented to one around one particular verse, and we see God giving the revelation of his word before this verse and after this verse. That verse is verse 6. We'll get there. But this will help us see the resource that God does provide. Now, if you hear this and you're going, or you're thinking, wow, is that all? What a church answer. What a Sunday school answer. Why can't God just do something incredibly powerful and glorious? Well, if that's what you're thinking, then this chapter is especially important for you to understand and come to grips with. Because when we respond to what God provides, with that kind of an attitude, we have a problem. It's making light of what God knows we really need. And that can carry over in so many different areas of our lives. The first resource, then, that God provides to his anointed but still being hunted king. You like that title? David is God's anointed but still being hunted king. Sounds like it doesn't even make sense. But that's the reality that God has David in. Is the revelation of his word. So this is really about the value of living by God's word in all the ups and downs of life. Now you notice 
that what's changed here is that David is being challenged by the Lord to think about much more than his own survival. What else has happened? Well, he must consider his duty as God's anointed king, as God's anointed king of Israel to his people. Who are his people? Well, we read earlier that there's 400 men who came to him for safety and leadership. And I guarantee you that most everybody in this room would not pick any of those guys to be, quote, your men, unquote. But that group has changed in number. Did you notice? They're not 400 anymore. They're 600. And now his neighbors in the town of Kila, excuse me, Kila is the Hebrew of that, even if you know somebody with that name and spelling. His neighbors in the town of Kila who were being attacked by the Philistines. Kila was a little town in Judah. David is from the tribe of Judah. These are his neighbors. These are his people. And do you remember back in chapter 22 when the prophet Gad instructed David to go back to the land of Judah? And we were probably reading that because we saw that David obeyed and did just that. There was no explanation of why. Just David, go back to Judah. Okay, I'm going. But why? Well, now we find out why. It becomes clear here in chapter 23 because it's a city in Judah that was under attack. And David recognizes his responsibility, even under all this pressure, being hunted, even as he continues to be hunted by Saul and forced to leave his own home, even as he sees his own family threatened by Saul's malice and murderous intent, even as he continues to suffer the disappointment and grief of being betrayed by the king he served in the king's court, even as he is forced to take care of and lead this motley group of 600 men, living like animals in some of the roughest places in the promised land. David recognizes that God is with him and that God is faithfully leading him, and he responds to this attack. The livelihood of this little town was completely threatened why? The threshing floor? Their sustenance and livelihood was being stolen by the Philistines. So when David hears then in verse 1 that the Philistines are fighting against Kyla and robbing their threshing floors, the first thing he does, what's the first thing that he does? He inquires of the Lord. We could stop right there and have three weeks of sermons, is our first response when we are faced with any kind of need, request of our time, more responsibility than we think is possible, is our first response to go to God. That's a big lesson. Most of us spend our whole lives learning that one. Hopefully, 
getting more obedient as we grow. So, he inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. Now that's quite a different attitude from being gripped by fear and panic, is it not? And we know that things have changed because look at the men's reaction. The commander responds correctly. He's learned this lesson, it looks like. But the men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. Why? Because the king's after them all. They've identified themselves with David. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? These guys knew it was bad enough to be hunted by King Saul. But now their leader was going to engage the Philistines as well. To them, that meant double trouble. And they voiced their opinion. So, how did David handle that? This is insightful. Did he yell at them to get in line? Did he berate them because they looked like they were voicing disloyalty? Did he try to coerce them? No. He inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. You see, in this situation, this provided the perfect opportunity for his men to be brought along in their faith like David had been. There are books that have been written about this kind of principle of leadership. Not manipulation, not coercion, not tyrannical oppression, but recognizing their true need and meeting it. David has grown, hasn't he? Notice that he didn't resort to his own reasoning or to any kind of coercion. Instead, he just agreed to inquire of the Lord one more time. Now, think about that for a second. What did those guys learn when they saw the man that they had come to follow immediately go back and ask the Lord on their behalf this time? what he should do. They learned that there was one greater than David that he was accountable to. And they started on their own path to what? To follow the one David was following. To go to the one David went to. Church leaders, fathers, anybody in an in a position of authority, especially in Christian circles or in the family, etc., this is so important to learn. And most of us learn it the hard way. Now, 
by going to God first and then helping his men confront and overcome their fear by going to God again, David brought in a unity and a confidence to his followers as they all followed the Lord's instructions. Can you see how that happens? David and his men went to Kila and fought with the Philistines, we read in the text, and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kila. And we go, amen, close it right there, great ending, great story. It's just getting started. In case you're wondering, verse 6 is this for your information note. It's in the Bible for a reason. And it's been confusing people for a long time. But this verse explains how it was that David could ask direction from the Lord and get such clear, specific guidance. Aren't you wondering that? When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Abiathar, remember, was the only surviving priest from the massacre at Nob, and he'd come to David. And we must remember also that he was Ahimelech, the high priest, the head priest there at Nob, the high priest. It was his son, a son of his. He came with the high priest's ephod, which was like a sacred apron that the priests wore. But this one also contained the Urim and the Thummim, used by the high priest as God's way for discerning his will in the Old Testament by providing a yes or no answer to pointed questions. It's like, it's been described as like one would indicate a yes, I mean, one would indicate a no, some kind of uh, lots, casting lots. It's not real clear, but that's the main idea. So verse 6 is central to this whole episode, and it serves to highlight both how Kyla was saved in the first five verses, now get this, by David and his men, and then how David and his company were saved in verse 7 through 13 by knowing when to hightail it out of there to safety. So on one side of verse 6, the, the part before it, it's, how Kyla was saved by David going in, and the second part was God's revelation, his word, and directing them when to get out. The Lord's word gave direction to first go to Kyla and then to get out of Kyla. And you notice the questions that David asked are yes-no questions. Um, embellished a little bit, probably by Abiathar, as as these are worked out, it became obvious by a yes or no answer what he should do. Isn't it typical that even when David and his men delivered Kyla from the terror of the Philistines, here in verses 1 through 5, that Saul thought of that victory over the hated Philistines, his enemy, as a way to accomplish his more important obsession of getting rid of David. He saw this victory, and again, just like when he responded to Goliath's death as nothing, oh, because he was embarrassed, he was the king, he was the one that was supposed to 
fight the giant. You know, he was their champion. This time, what happens? He sees this city. It's, it's a walled city. It's, it's got gates. If David's in there after he kicked the Philistines out, then he can attack the town and have him trapped. And that's what he's thinking. Saul actually thought God's, God's providence had finally smiled on him because David seemed to be cornered in a fortified city he couldn't escape from before Saul got there. Now look at verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. Who had left Saul, departed from him? God had. He made it very clear. God's spirit had departed from him. He had no direction from God for quite a while now. But David is the one who had access to the Lord and his word. Again, we see this contrast. Saul was the pretender David was the real thing. God was doing work that we have to think about as we see this transition of power because it wasn't just because that's the way it was done in the Middle East and the ancient world. It was because God was teaching valuable lessons to everybody concerned, including us, as we read these stories. David asked two yes or no questions of Abiathar who used the ephods Urim and Thummim. One question was, would Saul come down after him? The other question was whether the men of Kilo would give David up to Saul. Why would they do that? Well, we're told, but you have to look a little closer. Even after saving the inhabitants of Kilo, would the men there give in to Saul's Threats of destroying Kilo, look at verse 10. And so give David up to Saul? What does verse 10 say? Verse 10, Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilo to destroy the city on my account. In other words, it wasn't just David and his men that would be attacked. This was this was Saul's way. We, he's proven it in Nob already. He's after David. Collateral damage does not make any difference to him at all. Another town was getting ready to get wiped out. So, the Lord answers through the means of the Urim and the Thummim that yes, Saul would come, and yes, the men of Kilo would give David up to Saul. Now, with direction from God's word, David and his men get out of Kila before Saul could get there. So we read in the last part of verse 13 that Saul just gave up the expedition. And God's grace, Kila was spared. Spared from destruction 
from their own king because the Lord directed David to get out. Verse 14, And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, once again, but God did not give him into his hand. I think most of us, when confronted with a text like this, we usually think, well, okay, that's great. But I don't receive the kind of precise, direct guidance that David did. Every one of you has thought that. Every one of us thinks that we need that kind of precise guidance with every question that comes into our heads. Well, let me read you something from Dale Ralph Davis who comments on this very common response and follow this closely. See if you can tell what his attitude is about that idea. I don't receive that kind of precise, direct guidance either, he writes. Because I don't need it. I'm not the chosen king. It does my ego no damage to concede that David's function in salvation, in salvation history, is far more crucial than mine. The fortunes of the kingdom of God in this world rest far more on David's preservation than on mine. What was essential for the Lord's elect king to have, he received. For me, it's not so essential. See, if we followed through on our idea that God ought to do this for every one of his children, every one of his elect that he saved, no Christians would ever die. There would be no such thing as martyrs, Christian martyrs. And we know that many times God chooses to work in those ways to bring glory to himself. We wouldn't pick that first. But Christians down through history have been willing to what? Live and die for their Savior. But in principle here, there is no difference between this elect king and myself. In what context was the Lord's guidance given? Was it not in access to God through the appointed priest? And is that not the privilege I enjoy? Following? Through a much greater one than Abiathar? What does Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 mean after all? Quote, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, we find grace there at just the right time for whatever God's purpose is in it. 
Knowing whether Saul will come down to Kyla can't be any better than that. Consider just two examples from Scripture about the resource of God supplying his word to us, which all of us have. And this is not the cliff notes. Psalm 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Does your soul need reviving? Why are you chasing all the stuff that we chase to revive your soul? God's word is what does it through the attending power of his spirit. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What does that mean? The simple are people who are simple. Greatest translation you'll ever hear. Everything is pretty black and white. You know, they have a hard time playing chess. But, you know, pretty much everything's right there. And what is this promise? The word of God makes wise the simple. And we've all seen examples of how God uses a simple statement of truth from somebody who's not the smartest person on the planet and it silences those who think they are. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Is your heart having trouble rejoicing now because of something or because of a period of life? precepts of the Lord, his word, are right. Putting your joy and hope in them is what gives your heart joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We live in a world that every day each of us cries out, oh God, it's chaos. It looks so bad. I can't make sense of this. The word of God enlightens our eyes in the middle of it. Psalm 119, 105. Very simple. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Everyone can understand this. See, we, we say we, we believe in God's word. We profess it, we hold it up, we teach it, we, we preach it. We must make sure that we know it, that we understand it, that we apply it to our heart in day-to-day -day normal activities. If we don't, we're missing the boat. Like David, when we make a habit of carefully consulting the Lord, not only are we enabled to reign through God's word, but we are also rescued from all manner of dangers. What? 
Consider the besetting sins of our time, such as, okay, this is going to be a short list, wanton sexual indulgence and the celebration of all manner of sexual sin and deviant behavior, probably number one on most people's radar. Despite temptation and confusing moral values, Christians who diligently consult God's word will be delivered from great sin. It's not magic. The Bible teaches, flee from sexual morality, immorality, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And by following this counsel, believers are spared from what? Many, many, many bad situations. An old word for that is woes. Young people, especially given the amoral nature of worldly youth culture, may be tempted to adopt the sensual matter of dress, uh, manner of dress or conduct, despite the lifestyle to which such an attitude often leads. And how does God's word rescue them from that danger? Paul reminds us of our high calling to purity and holiness. He writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. And here's a, we don't read this very, you don't hear this read very much in churches anymore. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named or heard of among you as is proper among saints, the saints. We could say the same about other common areas of sin such as materialism or greed. God's word offers to believers the blessings of probably one of the best known Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. We complicate everything so fast, and usually it's because we want to compromise what God's word says. And we know that we're all sinners, and we deal with sin amongst us. Sin has an answer. We run to the cross. We learn how to apply what Jesus did on the cross to our lives. So we're not afraid of that. But the goal and where we're heading should be exactly what Paul wrote. And we wonder why people can't tell sometimes that there's any difference between people who claim to be Christians and people who aren't. This is the reason. Now, the following is a very brief outline summary of one of the best books ever on this subject of dis discovering God's wills and, and using the Bible as the resource. It's Sinclair Ferguson's Discovering God's Will. And it's been around for a few years, but it needs to be probably in every home. It's only nine bucks on sale at some Christian bookstores that we know of. 
I don't have it, I don't have it. Just skip lunch one day this week. I mean, th there's no excuse for not having these resources, really. Every one of us can get them. Ferguson guides us in the proper use of the scriptures in discerning God's will for our important decisions. And he just offers four main steps, and of course he illustrates it and gives examples. Uh, it's not a huge book, 100, I don't know, 60 or 70 pages. Some of these may seem like they'd be common sense. My reaction is, well, they probably should be. But that only suggests that most of us lose even our common sense when we're enslaved to some particular sin that we've come to crave. And what Ferguson gets at is training our minds through Scripture to inform our hearts, our wayward hearts, of what is much more obvious than what we make it when we're so easily deceived by sin. The first main step he's, he talks about is when faced with a choice, we should seek to understand what the Bible prohibits or commands. And our response is, well, duh. We've got to start there, though, don't we? Sounds simple, but no action which is contrary to the plain word of God can ever be legitimate for the Christian. This means, of course, that we've got to know the scriptures. How about just knowing the Ten Commandments? Again, this seems obvious, but Christians can't avoid many, can't avoid many serious mistakes if they simply place the grid of the Ten Commandments over their decision-making and help the kids learn this. I still remember growing up and coming away from, I don't know what it was, Sunday school or something during the summer with little wooden deals tied together with leather. What little boys thought leather was, you know, cool. Ten little deals with the Ten Commandments. Do your kids know the Ten Commandments? Do you adults know the Ten Commandments? Any course of action that involves lying, hating, another person or seizing possessions that belong to somebody else is in violation of God's law. Pretty simple. The second thing he, he lists here is having ascertained which courses of action are forbidden, Christians should then consider which options are wise and beneficial according to biblical principles. Now see, here we, here, here we got to think about stuff a lot more. If, is this action likely to be profitable and in accord with biblical priorities? You know, oftentimes this, this question involves occupational choices and job location. I can't tell you how many people Marty and I have known in the 41 years that we've been married who have decided to move and have never considered if there's a church there that is actually standing on God's word where they can worship. And then we hear later, it's a dry and desolate place, and they're withered. Why isn't that part of the decision? Is this a job that will provide for my, cam my family when enabling me to be faithful as a husband, father, and Christian? Does this person I'd like to marry exhibit strong faith and biblical character? Don't these seem like common sense? But they're not, because we want to do what we want to do and we find ways to think we can get around it. 
Is this a reasonable purchase given my resources and my desire to support the work of the church? Will this choice strengthen my relationship with Jesus Christ? And here's the danger, or will it slowly squeeze out spiritual energy and even become so primary I may make it the driving force of my life? We've got to remember that the world that does not know Christ has nothing else to live for except their favorite thing to do. And it's easy to get sucked into all sorts of stuff. And most of them can be great, but we... We've got to know where the brake pedal is on these little deals, and many times we don't. Third, Christians should ask what effect a given choice or decision is likely to have on others. This is shouting, it's not just about me. How will this decision affect family members, co-workers, friends, fellow church members? Is it true that the Bible teaches, it is true that the Bible teaches Christian liberty in matters of biblical permission, but our liberty must always be guided by what? Responsibility and love. We are not free to do anything we want to do. That is anathema in the world that we live in right now. We yell on one hand, personal responsibility, personal responsibility. That's what's wrong with America. And on the other hand, we do exactly the same thing, except it colored a little different. And lastly, the fourth, Christians should compare their proposed action with a biblical example or illustration. In case you haven't noticed, the Old Testament is a great place to look. A lot of times in the Old Testament, though, people do things and there's not commentary on it right there. So you have to learn how to read it, understand it, know what's going on. Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. People read that and go, man, he sounds like an egomaniac. Uh-uh. Paul's the most humble Christian leader known in the church. He meant that. Hebrews 13, 7, that we should consider the example of faithful Christian leaders. All these examples, though, point to the most important example, and we know who that is, our Lord Jesus. And not in the ways that only he came to earth to do. We can't do the things that Jesus did. But, in his compassion for the weak and broken? You bet. His zeal for God and his ways? You bet. His courage before worldly opposition? You bet. Any of those things you think are missing in the world that we live in? You bet. What a privilege we have. It's a great privilege. That's why we need one another to help each other walk that way. Psalm 67 has an interesting title. Uh, 63, excuse me. Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Sound familiar? Yes. This is him in this situation that we're reading about here, right in the middle of chapter 23. 
Everybody in here probably loves this. Some of you gals probably have had this crocheted on something from grandmothers, and you still got it hanging somewhere in your kitchen or your living room. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Can you hear David's cry? So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life? Yes. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Can you hear him? How can he meditate on the Lord in the watches of the night? Because the pre pressure and the stress are so great. He has trouble sleeping. Anybody else have that problem? What do you do with it? Let's pray. Oh God, we're confronted with the importance of your word that we know, that we that we profess, that we proclaim, and yet we know in our own hearts we shove it aside so many times. We don't go there first. We don't utilize what you've given us and because the Spirit attends your word. You know exactly what we need, and it's to get to know you, to know you through your word, attended by your powerful Holy Spirit. Transform our hearts and minds. Give us a hunger and desire for the, your truth. Oh God, we want to be able to say with joy in our faces that you are our joy. That you are life. That you are better than this life to know. We pray that you would do this in each one of us and use us as your people as a group to encourage one another in that regard. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Please stand for the benediction. The grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.